0: Which, please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Also want to welcome our friends from Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of the book of James, and as we prepare to dig back into that series and back into that book, let's watch this together. Now, as you go through that long walk of obedience, last week we talked about the trials that you'll face, and today we're gonna talk about the temptations uh that we will uh face. And so the title of today's study is when temptation strikes. We're continuing with our verse by verse study of James uh going now to verses 13 through 18. Now normally when you think about temptation, you think about things like sex or drugs or or food or some people are addicted to, uh, uh to temptation of um uh, the NFL football. My wife, I came home Thursday night and uh she's glued to the TV watching the NFL draft. And I walk in, I say, Dear God, how did I deserve such a woman? This is, I just, this is such a wonderful thing. And, and I'm working on my sermon Friday evening and she texts me, Green Bay just picked up a cornerback. Green Bay just picked up a cornerback. And, and so I remember when Kimberly was pregnant with our daughter Leah. Uh, she just loved chocolate. She was just addicted to chocolate. So I was at a grocery store during that time, probably buying her some more chocolate, and I saw the front headlines of the National Enquirer, and the headlines went, Chocoholic Mom Gives Birth to Sugar-Coated Baby. So yeah, glad that did not happen. So normally we think of them in that light, but there are more subtle temptations. The temptation to shade the truth, the temptation to be dishonest in financial dealings, the temptation to watch something we shouldn't watch or read something that's not healthy for our walk with God. And then it's the temptation to not do certain things that we should do, to skip our daily time with God in prayer and and reading His Word and fellowship with other Christians, uh, to back out of a commitment, uh, maybe to keep quiet uh, about injustice or to keep quiet when people are gossiping in our presence. Or to keep quiet about Jesus when we should speak up about him. And so here's our key spiritual principle for the morning. It goes like this. For the Christian, falling to temptation usually comes from forgetfulness of God, not hatred of God. We're followers of Jesus. We don't hate God. But what we do in that moment of temptation when we fall is we forget about God. That temptation seems very near and big and God seems small and far away. So forgetfulness is the problem. James is going to tell us what we need to remember in the moment of temptation. And the first part is the good news, and the second part, the first part is the bad news, and the second part is the good news. The bad news is consider the consequences, verses 13 through 15. Let's read the verses together, and then we're going to come back and uh, take it apart. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So let's, let's break it down now. Uh, the definition to tempt is to entice someone to commit an unwise and immoral act, especially by a promise of reward. So Satan promises us a reward if we do that thing. And there's a certain element of truth in that. Did you know the Bible says that sin is fun? And you're like, boy, I'd like to know that verse. They never taught us that in Awana or in Sunday school. Uh, What's that verse? Well, Hebrews 11, verse 25. They're talking about Moses. And it says about Moses, he choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So the Bible teaches that sin is fun. It is a whooping good time. Uh, It is pleasurable, but here's the catcher, for a season. Short-term fun, long-term heartbreak. And so Satan's uh, approach to us is to emphasize the benefit of sin and to de-emphasize the consequences. Now what Satan does is he stands there and he goes, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then we do it. And he steps by and points an accusatory finger, and he says, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. God hates you now. Oh, you can never be forgiven. Oh, man, you are in such big trouble. Do it, do it, do it. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and your friends dared you to do something? How many of you ever took the dare of a friend? And they dare you to do it, you do it, and then when the consequences come, where are your friends? They're gone. I triple dog dare you to do that thing, and then when you do it, And the consequences come, he's nowhere to be found. Two ladies were shopping in Kansas City. Afterwards, they decide to eat at the Olive Garden. But there they found a freshly deceased, freshly run over cat in their parking space. One lady is especially, perhaps unreasonably, fond of cats. She could not stand the thought of leaving the dead cat there, so she took one of those brightly colored shopping bags that stores give out at the holidays and put the cat in it. She intended to take it home and give it a proper burial, but for the time being, she put it on top of the trunk of their car. Then the two women went into the restaurant. They ended up being seated in a raised area of the restaurant where they could see their car and also could see the people waiting to be seated. Eventually, a nicely dressed woman walked by their car, saw the bag on the trunk, and stole it, slipping it quickly under her coat. The thief then went on into the restaurant. There's a round fountain there around which people sit while waiting for a table. The woman with the bag under her coat sat on the steps of the fountain for a while. Our young ladies watched her closely. Apparently, she couldn't resist looking at her prize. She anxiously, she furtively opened her coat uh, and took a peek, and she fainted dead away. The management called 911. The ambulance arrived and the woman who was still unconscious was taken out on a gurney. As the paramedics were wheeling her out, someone said, wait, here's her gift. They placed the brightly colored bag on her stomach and took her to the ambulance. Now that's how Satan operates. He says, look at the brightly colored bag. And so we grab it and we open it up and there's a dead cat inside. Uh, Martin Luther, the great theologian from the 1500s said about temptation and sin, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. That's why bald people are the godliest ones of all because ain't no bird going to build any nest in my hair, I'm telling you. And, and and so what he's saying is there is no sin in temptation. And that's an important point because Satan gets us to waste all this time and energy feeling guilty about simply being tempted. Now, we should avoid places of temptation, but save your energy, not for feeling guilty about being tempted because there is no sin in temptation. Save your energy for avoiding places where you will be tempted, and then if you can't avoid it, you're in a situation temptation comes. Save your energy for resisting and saying no to the temptation uh, when it comes. But there is no sin in temptation. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, talks about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted. Okay, Jesus was without sin, but he was tempted, so there is no sin in being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know the phrase, been there, done that? Well, he's been there, been tempted, he's been there, but he hasn't done that. Been there, hasn't done that. We've been there, and all too often have uh, done that. And so save your energy. I just want to emphasize this one more time. Satan gets us to, how many of you have ever felt guilty about being tempted? Just the mere fact that you're tempted. Well, well, me neither. I've never been. Okay, okay, so (laughs) at any rate, uh, you know, we waste all this energy feeling bad because we got tempted. Save that energy before it happens to avoid places where you're tempted and then save the strength of the Lord for when you actually uh, face that temptation uh, instead of wasting it on false guilt. Psychologist Mark McGinn said that Christians pretend we're not tempted. That's what we do. We pretend that we're not tempted. Now that makes for a deadly combination. Now are not only are we tempted but we're isolated, and that's that's a prescription for falling to temptation. You are isolated, we all pretend, we come here, we look around, everybody looks so perfect, and so we say, oh, I ain't tempted, you tempted? No, not me, we're not tempted. So now we're isolated, thinking we're the only one that is tempted, and then isolation plus temptation often leads to failure. That's why one of our favorite phrases here at Purpose Church is we wanna be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. We don't wanna be a museum for saints where everybody looks at each other, hey, ain't no temptation going on here. We wanna be a hospital for sinners, where we know that we're sick and we know we need help and we know we need each other. And so we, we acknowledge it, we own up to it, and then we band together in prayer and strength uh, together. Now, one of the places in our church where this is most put into practice should be an example to all of us and all of our groups is Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday night. Celebrate Recovery, Christian 12-step group. They are, boy, if you go to one of those, it is just refreshing because everybody's just like owning the, the temptation, and because they do that, they have strength to face uh, the temptation. Here's a little trivia question uh, that multiple people told me after last uh, Sunday's message. Um, anybody here know what Alcoholics Anonymous was called before it was called Alcoholics Anonymous? Anybody? It's called the James Club. Isn't that interesting? Because the principles of AA are based on the book of James. Uh, the ones we're looking at today, later on when it talks about confess your faults to each other and pray for each other and all throughout the book of James, it was called the James Club because Alcoholics Anonymous, it was based on other things like the Sermon on the Mount and, and 1 Corinthians 13 and others, but primarily from the book of James. So before they were Alcoholics Anonymous, they were the James Club. Now here's the process that James uh, talks about. First of all comes Desire. Uh, verses 13 and 14, James 1, verses 13. When tempted, just like last week, it didn't say if you face trials. Remember, it said whenever you face trials because you will. So instead of if tempted, it says when you're tempted. It's gonna happen. No one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He's holy. He can't tempt us. He, he won't tempt us to sin. But then verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire, our original sin, we are born with original sin, that is a bent towards sin. How many of you had to teach your children to be rebellious? Anybody? How many had to teach your children to say no? Nobody had to. Uh, so by, it's by our own evil desire, our sinful nature. We're dragged away by our own sinful nature and, and enticed. So we are naturally drawn to that which hurts us. Uh, Look at children. Whenever our grandchildren come, our children will let us know. They give us a list of things we have to do to be childproof before the grandchildren arrive on our premises. And so, uh, we have this list of: got to get the little things in the electrical outlets and stick them in. Got to get the fence, uh, you know, the little for the gate, the gate for the stairway, and all all those things. You got to prepare. Because the prince and princesses are arriving and they are enticed. They are enticed by that which hurts them. So they are drawn to electrical outlets. They are drawn to stairs. They are drawn to fireplaces. But you know, we adults aren't all that different, are we? We're drawn to things that hurt us. We're drawn to places that do us harm. We're drawn to people that hurt us. We're drawn to bad relationships that will drag us down. And that leads us to the next one, which is deception. Verse 14, uh, James 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, I don't care for this particular translation of dragged away, because it carries with it the idea, any of you old enough to remember Flip Wilson, Uh, anybody remember, and he always used to say, the devil made me do it, okay, it makes you have the idea that, hey, had nothing to do with it, Satan dragged me away, couldn't help it. Uh, actually, this, this word that's translated dragged away is from the Greek word exelkomenos. And this one is, uh, that's translated enticed is from delia minos, And these combination of these two Greek words literally means to be drawn out. It's a fishing term. In the same way that the fisherman draws out the fish with the bait. It's a hunting term. In the same way, a hunter draws out the animals so they can be shot or draws out the animal so they can be trapped. And and, and we are deceived. Um, We we have the desire within us from our sinful nature and then we are deceived and drawn out, dragged away and enticed, uh, drawn out here. Then the next step is where the sin occurs. No sin so far. Here comes the sin. Uh, Disobedience. Now, You'll notice we have the fill in the blanks at the bottom. There's a typo there. And instead of disobedience, it says dose obedience. That's Spanish for sinning twice in a row. Okay, so <laughs> dose obedience, that, that's so, so you can correct that. So <laughs> I'm glad you guys thought that was funny. I've been laughing about that ever since I found that typo. I, I love that. Okay, verse 15, James 1 15. Here's the moment of sin. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Okay, that's, that's the moment of sin. That's the moment of decision. Save your spiritual energy. Satan will try to wear you out feeling guilty about being tempted. Save your energy for avoiding those places and then where you face temptation and then it's, when it's unavoidable, save your effort with God's help for this right here. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, it's kind of like this. Let's show our fishing video here. And you fishermen here, you're not going to think about anything after this. You're just in your glory right now. And so here's Mr. Fish, and he's been drawn out of his hiding place by the bait. Now, he should just get out of there. He should swim away. Run, forest, run. But he says, there's no harm in hanging out. I mean, what's the harm in hanging out? I'm not going to bite it. I'm just going to hang out here and see what it's about. I'm just, I'm just curious. So I'll take a little nibble, and oh, my goodness, I took a little nibble, and look, nothing bad happened they told me, all my fish friends told me that a bad thing would happen if I bit it. But I took a nibble of it, and nothing really bad happened. So I think I'll just hang around, because it's kind of interesting, and I'm just curious. I know I should swim away, and my mother told me to swim away. But you know what? I just kind of think I'm going to hang out here, and I took a nibble, it didn't hurt me. But whoa, now I'm going to go after it, and when I do, lo and behold, I'm gone, I'm dead, okay. Next thing you know, he's in the frying pan, ready for dinner uh, later on that day. Uh, That's the way, that's what James is talking about. That is precisely an illustration uh, of what James is talking about here in these verses. Now, each moment that we linger around temptation increases our danger, and so we should run. We should avoid, and if we come across it, uh, we should run, uh, now I'm going to really date myself. Now, anybody old enough here to remember the old show Hee Haw? Anybody remember Hee Haw? Okay, okay. Th- this is what in Southern Virginia, where I grew up, this passed for educational TV is, is or this whatever. And so, uh, so anyway, on Hee Haw there was Doc Campbell. Doc Campbell, and one day a guy runs up to him. Doc Campbell, Doc Campbell, I done broke my arm in in two places, and Doc Campbell says, "Well, then stay away from them places." Think about it for a second. <laughs> takes, takes an intellect to grasp it, okay. I've done broke my arm in two places, a couple of places. Well, then stay away from them places. And so God says, stay away from those places. Another Southern Virginia illustration. If you grew up in Southern California, you had Space Mountain. If you grew up in southern Virginia, you had the back of a pickup truck. is, is what, That was your ride. And, and so there were two types of kids. There were the types that liked the danger, so they liked the tailgate down, sit right on the tailgate, going through the farm, and, and they were right on the edge of danger, so if you hit a bad bump, you fell out. Then there were the more cautious children. They wanted the tailgate up. They wanted to be in the back as far into the bed of the truck as possible, right up near the driver, right in the back, so if they hit a bump, they wouldn't fall out of the truck. Now, that's fine with pick up trucks because it's more fun that way, but there are two types of Christians. There are those Christians that sit on the tailgate, right on the edge, right on the edge of danger. Woo, That's kind of interesting. And then they hit a bump and they fall out. Then there's the type of Christian that's what we ought to be, tailgate up, far away from that as possible, up by the cab of the truck. The driver is Jesus. You get as close to him as possible. So when you hit the bumps of life, you don't, you don't bounce out. Uh, boy, we see, this, um, we see this in Scripture with the story in Genesis of Lot and Abraham. And Abraham tells his nephew, you can pick whatever land you want. He looks over this way, and the land's good. Uh, not great, but it's good, and it's far away from the cities that are over here in the good land. Then he looks at the good land, and oh man, it's not just good land, it's awesome land. It's great farmland, but right in the middle of it are Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he picks that land. Leaves the good land, not the great land, to Abraham that is far away from Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham never drifts in his commitment to God because he's far from Sodom. But you know what you find? This is a sermon for another time. Nice three-point sermon. The first time you read about Lot, he pitched his tent near to Sodom. The next time you read about Lot, he's living in Sodom. And the next time you read about Lot, Sodom is living in him. He's adopted the culture of Sodom, that horrible passage where he offers up his daughters for human trafficking, um, you know, as a way to appease some stupid hospitality guideline for his guests. And you realize, first time you see him, he just pitches his tent near Sodom. Then in Sodom, now Sodom gets within him. But Abraham, because he pitched his tent far from Sodom, didn't have as much nice land at the first But eventually, God prospers him long-term, long-term blessing, the long road of obedience. So, desire, deception, disobedience, now death. The last part of verse 15 goes like this. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. We're talking spiritual death here. Uh, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages, the result of sin is spiritual death. Now, here's Here's what Satan does. Uh, Another thing we had in Southern Virginia were binoculars. And as a kid, I loved to play with binoculars. You had Disneyland, we had binoculars. And and the thing we thought that was so cool, okay, this fascinated my little mind, was you look in binoculars, something small and far away seems big and, and close. But then if you flip the binoculars, clever children like me realize you could do this, now something big and close seems little and far away. And this is what Satan does. He puts binoculars on the pleasure part of sin. He says, look, it's big. Look, it's close. But then when it comes to the consequences, he flips the binoculars around. He says, look, oh, look the consequences, they're small. They're far away. They're possibly even uh, non-existent. Uh, you'll get by with this. It hurt other people, but it won't hurt you. And so we need a reality check. And the reality check is God's word, the Bible. This is why we worship together. This is why we study God's word together. This is why we pray for each other because the Bible is not a set of binoculars. It'll tell it to you straight the way it is. Here's the blessing. Here's the consequences. This is the book that will guide you. This is God's word that will tell you the way life really is and it cuts through uh, the, the deception. I mean, imagine that little fish if just before he bit down on that hook, if I said, hey, little fish, can I just show you a video clip real quick? And I take him over here, and here's a video clip where he bites down on the bait, and oh, there's a hook in it. And oh, next thing I know, I'm being flopping around, can't breathe in the bottom of the boat. And oh, the next thing I know, they're cutting my head off and my tail, and they're scraping my scales off. No, next thing I know, I'm in the frying pan. Next thing I know, I'm on somebody's plate at Denny's. Okay, and so... So you you show him that little video clip. Now he says, maybe I won't do that. And the same thing is true for us. That's why we need God's word. Is um, David standing on his rooftop, looking down at Bathsheba, taking a bath. Another man's wife. Now what if I'd said, King David, just a second, got a video clip to show you. And I pull him over and I said, this is the consequences of what's going to happen if you do this. First, marital infidelity. Next thing that's going to happen is the baby from this relationship is going to die. Next thing that's going to happen is your son, Amnon, um, is going to rape your other daughter, uh, Tamar. And then a different son, Absalom, because of that, is going to hate Amnon so much that he plots and eventually kills him. And then Absalom is going to have such a root of bitterness against you, his father, that he's going to participate in a conspiracy to overthrow you as king, lead an army against you, but then finally you're going to win that and your general Joab is going to kill your beloved son Absalom. All that's going to happen if you bite down on the bait and call up Bathsheba. Do you think he calls her now? No, he doesn't call her now. Why? Because at that moment, the consequences were small and far away and and, and God was small and far away and the pleasure was up close and personal but he would get a reality check. Same thing happens in Genesis chapter three, verses one through six, the initial temptation. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, and that's what people do, they'll get you to doubt what God's word says. They'll get you to water down what God's word said. You must not eat from any tree in the garden, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die. Again, doubting God's word. God's word didn't really say that, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows, now you doubt the goodness of God. God's holding out on you. God, wants you. God doesn't want you to have the fun that I want you to have. There's so much more in life than what God has in store for you. And he knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, that's been the bad news. Now let's look at the good news that we should remember when we face temptation. Consider God's goodness. He's not trying to spoil a good time for keeping you from these things. He's trying to protect you. He loves you. He, He desires the best for us. You know what Nathan, who confronted David about his sin, his good friend Nathan, you know what Nathan said to David when he confronted him, first he said, he said you're the man. Okay, he, he calls him out on this. You're the man that said this. 2 Samuel 12, uh, verses seven and eight. He says, you're the man, and, and God has blessed you. Uh, the God, he, the, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Verse eight, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. This is what God says to us. I have blessed you so much. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God says, I love you. I've blessed you. And if you'll walk in the long road of obedience, as James talks about the long road of obedience, I will give you even more. Don't say yes to those short-term, cheap thrills that Satan offers to you. Follow me. I give good gifts. Verses 16 and 17. James chapter 1 verse 16. Don't be deceived by him, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He never changes. Uh, verse 17 uh, says that he, he does not change like shifting shadows. There are no baited hooks with God, there's no bait and switch with God, and he gives us new, new birth, verse 18. He says, in, in, in verse 18, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, I, I'm sorry, that's um, James 1, verse 18, and then we'll go. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. 2 Corinthians 5, verse uh, 17. Um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, And the new is here. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. You are not alone here. Now, you know, temptation takes different forms for different people. Different people are tempted by different things. It takes different forms for different people. But I want you to know, you're not by yourself. Oh, you say, Pastor Glenn, if if, if you only knew what I'm being tempted by, oh my goodness. No, no. You're, you're in good company here. This is not a museum for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. And so accept what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Okay? He's, he's going to give you an escape if you look to him for help. He, he, sin has no authority over you. You don't Satan will tell you that you have to give into it. You do not. If Christ is in your heart if you've received him as your Lord and Savior, it has no authority over you. Now you will slip sometimes and when you do, you ask for forgiveness, you repent of that and you ask for forgiveness and then the relationship is restored like we talked about in our Holy Spirit series. Okay, there, there's forgiveness available for you. There's grace available for you. But there's woundedness that comes too. There are scars. There's forgiveness but there are also scars, so avoid the scars in the first place. Uh, avoid all that disconnected relationship with God. And, and it doesn't have authority over you. You don't have to give in to it. Uh, General Jonathan Wainwright was in charge of the Allied troops on the Philippines uh, when they were conquered by um, uh, the nation of Japan. And, and so he surrendered, and he was in a prisoner of war camp uh, for three years. And the war ended, and the Allies had won, but nobody knew about it in the camp but the commandant of the camp. The only one that knew it was the the Japanese commander of the camp. Nobody else knew it. So business went on as usual, even though Japan had surrendered to the United States. Eventually, an Allied airplane landed near the POW camp where General Wainwright was imprisoned. An American officer walked up to the fence saluted and announced, General, Japan has surrendered. Armed with that piece of truth, Wainwright limped all the way to the commandant's office. He opened the door and asserted, my commander-in-chief has defeated your commander-in-chief. I am in control now. You must surrender. Without firing a shot, the emaciated, physically handicapped prisoner of war took over the camp from the well-fed, heavily armed commandant. Wainwright understood about authority. Nothing had changed inside the camp in those moments. The barbed wire was still up. The guards still carried rifles. The enemy's flag still flew overhead. The commandant was still behind his desk in the office. But Wainwright knew that despite the way things looked in the physical world, the victory was one, and he, Wainwright, was now in authority. So when you go toe-to-toe with Satan, you tell him, my commander-in-chief has defeated your commander-in-chief. My commander-in-chief came into the world, lived a sinless life, resisted every single temptation he was faced, he stood the test, he died on the cross, he rose on the third day, He seated at the right hand of the Father. My commander in chief has defeated your commander in chief. You have no authority over me. I need not give in to this temptation. Leave me right now.